This is an ABC podcast. The books of the Bible have endured for thousands of years, partly because the stories they tell are so vivid and strange, and the language is so compelling. There's the creation of the world and everything in it. There are stories from ancient Babylon, from the Egypt of the pharaohs, and from the Roman Empire. The earth is flooded, cities are destroyed, someone gets swallowed by a whale, people are possessed by hordes of demons, and then are released of them. And one figure in particular preaches radical kindness. He is crucified by the Romans and then resurrected from the dead. And at the end of the Bible, there's this wild fever dream of an apocalypse. The Bible is arguably the most influential book in the history of the world. But it was written by people who are utterly unaware of the existence of the great southern land that we live in, on the far side of the world. And the people who were living here had their own stories and ideas of how the world came into being. Meredith Lake is an historian at Sydney University and she hosts Soul Search on ABC Radio National. Her book tells the story of what happened when the Bible of the Christians was brought to these shores and how its ideas and stories continue to influence the way people think, sometimes without even realising it. In 2019, Meredith Lake won a Prime Minister's Literary Award for her book and the wind sparked a fiery debate on social media with people calling for the separation of church and state. It didn't matter that the then Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, wasn't actually at all involved in the winning pick. The perceived association of politics with the big scary B-word, the Bible, was enough to make people anxious, even vitriolic. Meredith Lake's book is called The Bible in Australia. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Richard. Did that experience at the Literary Awards in Canberra show that the Bible still can be a very inflammatory subject in Australia, even now, when churches are shuttering across the country? Oh, I mean, I think Australia is the place that coined the phrase Bible basher. There is a deep strain of our culture that is wary of preachy and moralising types, and I think we are all familiar with that. I think we've lived enough to see that it's very political, but also deeply personal. It's really triggering for a lot of people, and at the same time for others, it's a transformative text. It's, it's not easy. It doesn't fit in a box and a lot of us have our own stories, our own opinions. And what I was really interested in is, well, what have Australians over the last two, 250 years or so actually made of a text that came from another time, another place that itself is diverse and, as you said, strange, weird, compelling, gripping, and yet doesn't fit in, in a box? And I wanted to lean into the grand conversation that Australians have been having about this, this very beguiling book. You say the Bible has come to Australians in three main forms. There's the globalising Bible, the cultural Bible, which is the the, the compelling stories, and then there's the theological Bible. And this is more the theological Bible. You're talking there, it's it's more than just a collection of, you know, compelling stories. It's the literal word of God and it's the instrument of personal salvation. Is that what gives it its its urgency for people like, like your parents? I mean, literal, it's the word of God, but even now Christians understand what does that mean in all kinds of different ways. And I wanted to use those three different modes, the global, the cultural, the theological, to kind of say, you know, we use this word Bible as if we all know what that means. But actually, that is unstable. 
It doesn't really exist in a static way. The Bible to my generation with a smartphone app is not the same as the Bible that James Cook might have had on the Endeavour or the one that in the Creole language in the Northern Territory that is being read by Indigenous communities. It's certainly not the same as the one, you know, Augustine was reading when he was imagining the great Southland as impossible because Adam and Eve certainly couldn't have travelled that far. What I wanted to keep in the foreground is the instability and the openness and unpredictability of this text. And yet the reason why it's, I think its potency endures even beyond, say, I think its nearest rival for cultural influence in Australia is probably Shakespeare. But people don't try to bend their lives, say, to the vision of the world that you might meet in Hamlet or in one of those plays. It's not something you kind of take to be authoritative in the way that people take a sacred text. But the Bible and other sacred texts, but particularly the Bible in Australia, has been the focus of whole communities, institutions that have normalised, replicated particular understandings of that text as the basis for life together. And that's had incredible power. And people do bend their own decisions and morality and vision of the world to what they take to be the meaning of that that text and all in all its complexities. You know, the earliest Christians uh, living in the Roman Empire, uh, the Middle East and, and the Mediterranean, they had a view of the world. You can see it in the Roman maps of the time where mm. the world was made up of three continents. There was Europe, and there was Asia and there was Africa. They're like spokes on a wheel and right in the middle of the world is Jerusalem. So how could any of them have conceived of there being this far-flung southern land on the other end of the world? I mean, the role of the scriptures in shaping the European imagination is you almost can't overestimate that. But even just to calibrate your geography with the stories that you read in the Bible, is a European habit of mind that has over centuries been absolutely transformative for a place like this that's as far from Jerusalem pretty much as you can possibly get. And so Augustine, for example, one of the early church fathers, imagines the great Southland and thinks, well, it probably doesn't exist. How can there be antipodes? Because Adam and Eve couldn't surely have traversed such a wide ocean. I mean, he's reading the Bible in a certain way. But, of course, Europeans do eventually attempt that very expedition. And when they do, they bring Bibles, they encounter the people and places of the South Pacific. And I think reading Cook's journals and the reactions to them, you get kind of two different takes. Some of them go, oh, my goodness, there is so much here that's not envisioned in the biblical text that maybe it's not the universal word that we took it to be. Maybe it's actually much more culturally confined than we've been led to believe. And it plays into the sceptical kind of questioning that we see in that 18th century Enlightenment period. Lots of the officers on the First Fleet have that kind of take. You know, reading about you know, the Christians of Byzantium, they saw the lands on the great steppe where the great riders were, you know, the, the equivalent of the Dothraki in Game of Thrones. They thought those lands were bad lands and they were sort of untouched by God. Like they were almost, almost outside of God's creation. They were places that were completely godless and bad lands. So when you've got James Cook arriving on the east coast of Australia, and he's got a Bible. He's also got Joseph Banks on board, who's a botanist, who's going, look at all this new, these new plants we've never seen the like of before. Look at all these new animals we've never seen the like of before. What did the British make of Australia? Did they think it was somehow outside of God's creation? Or I just wonder what you know of how it disrupted their idea of what the universe was. It definitely rocked that boat. A lot of their assumptions had to be reassessed. Like, The European um, encounter with the South Pacific is a major 
it's a moment of real rupture for Europeans and their ways of understanding the world as well as for the Indigenous communities they, they meet. But there's the, the Badlands idea is certainly circulating, but there's also in that period an idea of the noble savage that maybe, I mean, Tahiti, for example, this is actually Eden. This is the good life, oh. uncorrupted. You know, this idea of an essential humanity that critiques European societies. So it's like the opposite of a Badlands, in other words. Well, this is a Garden of Eden. Right. And, so the, and that's the thing about the scriptural text. You know, Bible means it comes from the Greek for biblia, like we get bibliography. It's library. It's a library of books. It gives multiple accounts of most things, right? It, it's not a simple text. And are humans corrupted and fallen or are humans in, innately good? I mean, you get both these narratives in the text and Europeans draw on different parts of it, take up different ideas, and sometimes, you know, these are people who need to be converted and saved. They're heathens, so to speak. Or maybe they're actually the purest form of human. These are narratives that get taken up by colonists um, and applied to Australia in, in really diverse ways. But that, that always ultimately legitimate European colonisation. Like it never goes to the extent of saying, well, maybe we should just go back to Europe and stay there. There were a lot of practical sailors on the first fleet that arrived in, 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 on the east coast of Australia in Sydney Cove. But were there evangelists on board as well with Bibles? There was at least one, the poor young chaplain and his new wife, uh, Richard Johnson. He had the perhaps unenviable task of preaching to the convicts who weren't obviously famous for their morality. Uh, and he brought the first cargo of Bibles that we know about. Right, not just one Bible, a cargo of Bibles. I've seen his. It's still around. Uh, it's a very heavily used working kind of book. But he did bring 100 full Bibles, some New Testaments, and lots of tracts that I assume quoted from the Bible about why you shouldn't lie or steal or, you know, swear your head off. He saw it as God's word. For him, he was an evangelical who took it as a word of life, a word of salvation, a word of forgiveness. We have some of his writings. I've read his letters. He was pretty demoralised by the lack of support he had among the people around him for that particular vision. He talks about how he gave out the books that he'd brought with him, but some people tore them up for waste paper, as in toilet paper. Some traded their Bibles for a glass of grog, which, you know, there's, there must have been someone who would make the trade on the other side, right, who'd give away the beer to buy the Bible. But that wasn't what comforted him. He was pretty demoralised, I think, by... I guess the the disjunction between how he understood what what it meant and and how other people received it. How different is the Bible, the Bible that's brought by the pilgrims to North America, as opposed to the Bible that's brought here? I don't, I don't mean the Bible itself, or what the Bible is going to be used for, because you know the pilgrims who, who sure. went to North America it was there to build a new Jerusalem. It was to get away from the wickedness of it old Europe. It was the promised land. It was the promised land. That's right. What is the Bible then when it's oh, brought this to is Australia? Hell, right? This is hell. Is it? Is <laughs> well, that it? sometimes I mean, for, we see the discourse of hell among, especially places of sex punishment. So for convicts who re-offend and they get sent to Macquarie Harbour or somewhere like that, that discourse of hell, I think, I mean, it, it's a biblical idea, but broader than that, we see that. We see descriptions of Australia as a site of exile quite commonly. We see sometimes for pastoralists whose sheep were making them very rich, this is a promised land for them. Most commonly, we see Australia described as a wilderness, which was an idea that People more embedded in an Enlightenment tradition also picked up this idea of a transformation, that nature could be 
put to good use, made productive. That's the language of the time. That idea of a wilderness blossoming as a rose, which is how it's discussed in the book of Isaiah, right. that is very, very potent to the settler project. A virgin land. Uh, it's not uh, a wilderness, not like well, a bad a terra land. Nullius. A, ter- a terra nullius. Is this where we get the idea from terra nullius, the idea of the, the land is empty when they, get, when, they, when they arrive? Well, it's a little bit complicated, but I think a particular interpretation of that line in the creation story in the book of Genesis, where God instructs Adam and Eve to replenish the earth and subdue it, was interpreted by some Europeans to mean that if you subdue the land by which they meant their own forms of agriculture, European forms of agriculture, that gave you a right to it as property. And like John Locke and people like that, that those kinds of theorists help kind of articulate this view But the idea that you were living in step with God's vision for how the world should be could draw on a text like that to buttress something like European agriculture at the expense of Indigenous land ownership and farming practices. So I think there are certain biblical interpretations that are deeply complicit in that kind of colonising narrative for settler Australia. And that's actually one reason why the Bible and what people here have done with it is really relevant now whether people are going to church or not. So what do we do with narratives that say this was an empty land um, and that only certain ways of using it are ordained by God? I mean, Indigenous Christians have come right back at that and said this is toxic theology, here's another reading. But that's why I think the interpretation really matters. You mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of the convicts were issued a, a Bible by this this, uh, this clergyman when, when they arrived on the fatal shore of uh, Sydney Cove and some exchanged it for grog. What was it that you think made people want to take the Bible or to do, to do that exchange, to actually say, I would rather have the Bible than a cupful of grog? I think we need to remember that it's not like there were all these other books. You could just, you know, walk down to your local street library and read. No Netflix? No, no, no. And not even, <laughs> not even, dear God, not even an ABC. <laughs> oh, no, in the absence no. of the national broadcaster, yes. it's true. I mean, the story of Jonah and the whale or, you know, David and Goliath, it's pretty, I mean, there are talking donkeys. I mean, I don't want to trivialise it, but, I mean, convicts on the long voyage out who were, you know, often, like, literally there because they were criminal found a great way to relieve the boredom and the tedium of that kind of life in in the stories of the Bible. And I think anybody who's ever actually had a bit of a good look will find plenty that's, you know, salacious or surprising or shocking even, or perhaps comforting or otherwise even inspiring. Indeed. Certainly parts of the Bible are wildly entertaining. There's no (laughs) doubt about it. Yeah, And inspiring too. You've discovered that there were convicts who had biblical tattoos. What, What form did these tattoos take? This is a time when a lot of people couldn't read as fluently as most people can now. And the Bible kind of circulated in almost pictorial form. They're almost like graphic Bibles. The evangelicals of that period wanted the working class to to encounter the word of God and so produced these kind of pictorial Bibles that became in the late 18th and early 19th century something like the Tattooist Handbook. And so, you know, you walk in to get inked and you might choose a cross or a scene from the Garden of Eden um, some of the convicts who arrived here, we know because they were, you know, there's no mug shot, so you get the full description, including any bodily markings, tattoos, had centurions at the foot of the cross, Mary Magdalene. Wow. And then Yeah, I mean, it's all there. And then some of them had actual texts. Like one guy, William Shemmett, had, um, you know, that story of the priest and the publican. It's a, it's a story about hypocrisy in, in the Gospel of Luke. 
where it says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think that's a fascinating tap for a convict, right? (laughs) Except the irony is, in the biblical text, that's flipped against the self-righteous as a critique of them. (laughs) So it's very subversive, very clever, and I think if you were his jailer or his guard, you'd feel the sting of a tattoo that on the surface looks like a confession but really isn't. What about anchor tattoos? Is there anything biblical in that? Well, yeah, they were very common. Anchor symbols often came with the initials of, say, a loved one who'd been left behind. And it's a seafaring symbol, but the Bible picks up the culture of its time and, like, there were seafaring communities, lots of fishermen in the Bible, and becomes part of the language of the biblical text. And so you get passages that talk about hope as the anchor of the soul uh, in the New Testament. And so when you see an anchor tattoo with the initials of someone that perhaps you hope to see again, you kind of have this echo both of the seafaring life, perhaps of the voyage that you're anticipating to Australia, but also of this biblical idea of an anchor for the soul. I mean, there were pubs in that era called the Hope and Anchor. The Hope and Anchor, yeah. Yeah, I think there's still plenty of them, actually. But that's straight out of the the Bible. The Bible is, is full of stories of exile and alienation and suffering, and they're written about with great compassion. I, I suppose, I imagine, a lot of convicts took solace from reading those stories, Meredith. Well, I think we have to speculate a bit about that. It, it, there's not always a clear commentary of what convicts made of it on that personal or interior level. But there are stories of convicts on the scaffold facing their own executions, sometimes denouncing an unjust system that, in their account, put them in that position. One of them even quotes Jesus himself on the cross saying, I forgive all my oppressors. Mm. So on the one hand, denouncing an unjust system, but also claiming, I guess, a kind of victimhood that might be affirmed by God as it is in the biblical narrative. And I think the suffering Christ is an image that's had massive potency artistically, Personally, I think a lot of people have drawn comfort from that and I think the convicts, at least in some cases, would have been among them. As more and more clergymen arrive in in Australia armed with a cargo of Bibles, of course (laughs) one of the first things they see are Aboriginal people who are living just there amongst them or in the camps beyond the settlements. What were the Aboriginal people to them as as souls that needed to be won or or enlightened by the word of of God or, or something else? Well, those clergymen and the English colonists generally arrive at the same time that British Protestants launch a world-shaping missionary movement. Like the 19th century is a century of technological advance but also of massive, massive missionary expansion that basically makes the Bible the global text that it's become. And it's also the movement that comes out of England that um, tries to bring an end to slavery in the world too. Well, sure, it's, a, it's, a, it's socially engaged. It's, it's personal, but it's not private, if that makes sense. Yeah. This form of spirituality that really, it's one of the main forms that we get here in colonial Australia. But when it comes to Indigenous Australians, a lot of those clergy were, their main job was actually directed at white colonists and the reform of convicts. And in many cases... Extending the Bible across cultural boundaries was a kind of afterthought. Australia wasn't the main game, if you like, for those missionary organisations. They were much more interested in Africa, in India, in other parts of the South Pacific. But that said, there were a bunch of those kind of evangelistically minded Christians who sought to share their own faith, their own scriptures with people 
who belonged to the First Nations of this place. And that that's a very complex and unresolved story. But I think what makes the story of the Bible here in Australia still important, because then, as now, Indigenous Australians have had a whole spectrum of responses. But what's distinctive in Australia is that the Bible arrives in the wake of massive dispossession. Other parts of the South Pacific kind of get missionaries first and then colonists. Here you get colonists and then missionaries in their train. So Indigenous people initially encounter the Bible in the midst of the disruption of their languages and communities and cultures. And it's in that rupture moment that they meet this new text that comes as a book with a technology of writing and alphabetic literacy that's really unfamiliar, a vision of time as moving from creation to new creation that's totally different to the kind of more cyclical and place-oriented outlook. Sense of, of reality. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of Indigenous communities. And so there's this huge cultural clash. And yet, at the same time, Indigenous Australians, at least some of them, take massive interest and come to their own conclusions about what this text is and how does it relate to this colonising community that they're encountering. Tell me the story of Dickie Benelong. We all know the story of Benelong, who became a part of the early, uh, early Sydney's life and whose name is given to Benelong Point where the Opera House is. Tell me about his son, Dickie Benelong. You've got his story in your book. You almost need to start with his mother, Buron, who was a Baramadagul woman from the Parramatta, the Baramatta area of Sydney. She was befriended by that first chaplain, Richard Johnson, lived in his hut for about 18 months, like Benelong did in his own way, had a very close look at white society, at its religion, at its scriptures, its culture, and then walked out rejected it and tried to rebuild whatever she could of her own life in the midst of this disruption that I mentioned. She becomes partners with Benelong after Barangaroo's death. They marry and they have this son, Dickie Benelong. He loses both his parents at around the age of 12 or 13 and is institutionalised through the early native institutions and is adopted, that's the language of the missionary, not his, by the first missionary who's sent explicitly to Indigenous Australians. This missionary, this young guy, is about two years older than Dickie but <laughs> takes on this paternalistic fathering kind of role, which, you know, that, that's the whole model. It's very paternalistic, but recognises that Dickie's had some kind of conversion and we only have fragments of Dickie's own voice through the letters of this missionary. But from what we can tell, he converted to something like the Methodism of the missionary mentor that he had and began preaching to his own community. Now, did that mean, him converting to Christianity, does that mean he needs to renounce the old ways, the old spirituality, the old beliefs? We don't know what Dickie Benelong made of that question. The world that he, that his parents had been born in... Um, so it's not like an apocalypse has happened of a kind. There's been a major uprooting, there's been deaths, um, the, the old, the, the land that people have been walking through is no, no longer available to them. And so, I, I, yeah, I haven't really thought of that in those terms about how people are getting this message at this time when there's this profound disruption uh, and violence that's going on. I don't want to undermine the continuity that, that those communities did and still salvage despite the incursion of colonists from the other side of the world. Like, I don't want to say that he couldn't maintain his indigeneity in meaningful ways. Of course he did. But the tragedy in so many, there's so many tragedies here, but one of the tragedies is that after his baptism, it's about five months later, he catches some kind of illness and dies of it. He's, he's only in his early 20s. 
and he's mourned by his missionary friend as you know this was the this was going to be the evangelist to the other indigenous people of sydney and what's going on with god's providence that this man has died what his own community made of that we don't know um but he is the first indigenous australian to be baptized but other people in like his mother encountered the bible and made their own conclusions that didn't fit in the box of what a missionary said Christianity was about. I think it's a very open question. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were telling the story there before of the son of Bannalong and Burong, um, Dickie Bannalong, how he was the first Aboriginal evangelist in Australia. What did that mean in the idea, in the minds of the settlers then, or many of the settlers? Given that he'd accepted the word of God, did that make him a full equal in their minds. What's your sense of that? I know, I know it's hard to talk about this in specifics, but does it take the Aboriginal person concerned and make them uh, a fully-fledged equal, a brother and a sister of, of the colonists? There are competing views among the colonists because the nature of humanity and the role of Christian theology in defining that is already massively contested at the time that colonists bring the Bible to Australia. So for some colonists, Indigenous Australians can't be and won't be equal. And that's rather convenient, that narrative for those colonists, because it legitimates violence, dispossession, the disruption of the existing society that they replace with their own. And that narrative has a real potency in Australia. It's critiqued from within white society by people who take much more directly that Genesis narrative of you know, God making all people of the same stock, of the same family. A lot of those missionaries, like the one we've been discussing, uh, Thomas Walker, took it as basic that all humans ultimately were children of God or potentially children of God. And that's why you would share a Christian message with Dickie Benelong, because he had exactly the same capacity to be saved as, as a white person. So when Dickie's baptised, the passage they choose to read at the service comes from the Book of Acts, which is a part that tells the story where the Christian community expands beyond the original Jewish community to include people from Greek backgrounds and other backgrounds. Yeah, the Gentiles. It's yeah, Because Gentil- originally it was supposed to be just a, just a, a cult of a Jewish cult, wasn't it? Well, it's it? a yeah. Jewish heresy. And they claim that verse is relevant to the conversion of indi- an Indigenous Australian. I mean, it's, it's, it's still... It can be a very paternalistic, colonial kind of mindset, and yet there is this nugget of common humanity that somehow survives and becomes very radical, especially once you get the rise of kind of the scientific racism of the 19th century and kind of social Darwinist ideas about a hierarchy rather than a common ancestry. The question of are humans the same 
or are we different? And is there a hierarchy becomes one of the major questions of the 19th century with the new science, but also with the new theology. Was there a major effort to translate the Bible, given that there was such a stress by Protestants on the written word? Was there an effort to translate the Bible into Indigenous languages in early Australia? Well, yes, there was. I mean, this is one of, again, one of the major enterprises of British Protestantism in the 19th century around the world. You get organisations like the British and Foreign Bible Society, which by the end of the 19th century, they're dispatching Bibles every five seconds to somewhere in the world. There's this massive boom of Bibles in all kinds of languages. How can you do it in Indigenous languages, though? Like, you'd be fine with a burning bush, but what about a whited sepulchre or, or <laughs> sure. a Roman centurion? Oh, I mean, yeah, what do you, how, of, yeah. how, how do you, on earth do you translate things that are so outside the realm of, of the experience of the people you're trying to communicate with? Well, I mean, how do you say the Lord is my shepherd if you've never seen the sheep? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. and that these are perennial questions for translators and the missionary translators in Australia were acutely aware of these things. I think one of the most gripping stories for me involved Lancelot Threlkeld. He was a former circus actor. I mean, missionaries aren't always who we think they might be, who spent some time in the South Pacific where he did a lot of translation work and then comes to Sydney and starts a mission in Awaba land near Newcastle in New South Wales and sets about translating the Bible. Well, he starts by learning the language from an Indigenous well, scholar and philosopher called Biraban or Eaglehawk, who teaches Threlkeld the language and then collaborates with him in an exchange, I think, of sacred knowledge. Um, Threlkeld learns about um, Biraban's view of the world and they together try to find words for things like prayer, things like God, the Holy Spirit, and there's a real tussle, really, about how to do this. So Threlkeld, for example, can't use the English word God because all the Awaba know that word from the convicts who are using it as a profanity, right? So that, that's off limits. <laughs> <laughs> and so he can't just use that. There's no equivalent word. <laughs> so the convicts are going around using the Lord's name in vain and yeah. therefore that makes it not suitable. <laughs> yeah, so there's no Indigenous equivalent. The English word won't right. do. And so he ends mm. up going back to Hebrew and you get Jehovah as the oh. word for God in the Awaba translations of the Gospels. But when it comes to something like Holy Spirit... It's remarkable. There's huge accommodation there. He he goes for a word with Biraban that draws on traditions of men's sacred knowledge when Threlkeld didn't see, you know, the spiritual world as men's domain necessarily. But I guess as a kind of rapprochement between the way he saw the world and the way Biraban saw the world, they come up with a term that straddles both. But what happens is that the colonists of that area increasingly encroach on Awaba land Biraban's own people are increasingly dispossessed. They are increasingly exposed to European diseases and there is the death rate is huge. Threlkeld buries dozens and dozens of Awaba victims of disease on the, the land of the mission. There aren't really converts in the way that, um, you know, a missionary supporter might accept. And by the time they finish translating a number of the Gospels, there's very few speakers or readers of the language surviving. You know, in, in medieval Europe, when there would be a great plague going through the land, like the, the Black Death would go through the place and it would strike down the just and the unjust alike. It would strike down helpless infants as well as uh, uh, cruel people. It would strike down the rich and the poor alike. And it left a lot of um, believers 
thinking they lived in a morally disordered universe, like there was no God, there was because this felt morally chaotic. I wonder if the, those early evangelists despaired like that, came to feel that, you know, I've just done this work and now everyone dying of smallpox. I mean, what what is God's role in this? Is this do you get that Where sense is, of despair? What, what does providence mean? What does providence is mean? Is it benign yeah. or is it malign? Yeah, yeah and I think. I mean, the nature of, of disruption and, and, and devastation in the world. No, I mean, who's cracked that one, right? Yeah. But, I mean, Biraban dies bereft of his own children who've predeceased him. Threlkeld, you know, he, he, his life's work basically in his own lifetime seems more or less in vain. And yet oh, there, there were continuing Awaba communities and custodians of that language who did survive and using the dictionaries and some of the... Um, Bible and prayer translations that Biraban made with Threlkeld have become resources for the revival of that language that's going on now. So these biblical texts have had a life that was not what the original translators expected, but yet is very important to the communities that those texts belong to. You've got accounts in your book of Aboriginal people who've been converted and they become evangelical and they contact their kin and they, they'll say, you need to give up the old ways and you've got to take on this new way and this is important, the old ways are wicked. Over time, I've met some Aboriginal people in any case who seem to have not that much trouble actually sort of enfolding Christian ideas and it's Christian theology within their existing cosmology, their existing spirituality. It, it seems to not to trouble that too much. What's your understanding of all that? I think that's right, and that every convert, I suppose, has to negotiate that question of how does this gospel relate to my culture and what I already know? And that's a process of negotiation that pretty much every Christian that I've ever met or read about has had to go through. I was really struck by the story of Father Dave Passy, who was one of the plaintiffs in the Marbo case, uh, one of the last surviving plaintiff, actually. He comes from the Torres Strait, obviously, and was from the priestly line of his particular community. And Christianity has been very potent there since about the 1870s. They still celebrate the arrival of Christianity and its missionaries in 1871 as the coming of the light. And he talked about how his own culture, his own traditions, in his view, pointed towards Christ. And so for him advocating for a kind of Christian but Indigenous Torres Strait identity and connection to land was quite straightforward in that sense. When it came to arguing for land ownership in the Marbo case, he could even quote from the book of Proverbs. It says, do not move an everlasting boundary stone. He was like the biblical narratives about land, what I know about land, they're the same. The Bible reinforces my connection to this place and my ownership of this land. God gave me the land. And that was something that seems to me kind of bolstered his existing community and culture. And I think that it's not as binary as it's Indigenous or Christian. There are plenty of stories that rupture that kind of dynamic. Come the mid-19th century, Australia is really flourishing. It's getting rapidly quite a rich place and having the highest standard of living in the world in pretty no, in almost no time at all. There's quite an astonishing transformation. A whole lot of migrants are coming to Australia and then there's the gold rush and there's a whole lot of wealth that comes out of Australia at, at that time. You said this is a period you call as the great age of the Bible in Australia at this time. How, how was that manifested? Well, firstly, there's a massive Bible boom. Like this is the age of the steam engine, of the ballot box but also of the cheap Bible. There's an industrialization of printing that means the Bible becomes a ubiquitous book in the way that, that we might imagine it to be. People can get a copy for the first time easily in their own language ever since, since Jesus. Right, so you can bring the Bibles in, but are people willing to pick them up? 
Well, I think people are socialised in a way that exposes them at least to the main stories and ethics. I mean, churches are by far the largest and most extensive network of community organisations. Even unions and other community groups are in dialogue with the Bible around uh, how they want to do wage justice and pursue that. You get it in schools. People are encountering it, whether or not they believe it to be God's word and read it privately in their bedrooms every day. Even so, you might come across it in the newspaper. It's kind of saturating in that 19th century period. But again, not because everybody agreed on it. And that's why I'm almost teasing by saying it's a, it's a Bible boom. It's also the period when debates about the Bible, its authority, its interpretation. I mean, this is post-Darwin, obviously, the whole movement of higher criticism. Who was Jesus? Was he really divine or not? Those questions are becoming popular fare, the kind of thing you'd head down down in Melbourne to hear a debate about on a Saturday night. That is kind of all the rage at this time. And so it's almost a public pastime to debate the Bible, and that's partly why it's so so much in the foreground of public awareness in this period. Is it a sign of prosperity, like, because the Bible is then like the template for the good life? This is how you live the good life, the blueprint for the good life. I think it's not a template, it's the dialogue partner as everybody argues and debates those questions. What is the good life? Sure. And, And how do you crack a question like poverty, for example? It's not like the Bible presents one answer, but some people read it and founded charities. Other people read it and founded insurance mutuals. You bear ye one another's burdens, as it says in Galatians. Other people, um, like the unionist William Guthrie Spence, founding secretary of the Australia's Workers' Union, said, well, come on, Jesus made no mention of thrift. We need wage justice. Luke's gospel says a worker is worthy of his hire, pay us properly. And so you get, you know, do we need a savings bank or a charity or do we need unions? These are all ways of addressing poverty. And all the institutions that we see grow up to address that question are forged by people who have different interpretations of what the Bible might mean for that question in their minds. And we still live with all these institutions, which, you know, we all live through the Banking Royal Commission. Westpac is no longer a Christian organisation in the way it was when it was founded. It was? Sure. The same people who founded the Bible Society founded Westpac. Get out of town. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was a social enterprise. You'd provide for the poor by giving them a way to save. They should get married, stop drinking and put their money in the bank. This was the evangelical morality of early capitalism in Australia. (laughs) So this is a time also when it becomes, uh, to use a university phrase, it becomes increasingly gendered um, because um, the Bible <laughs> is like the instrument of women suddenly. Like you've got all these men behaving in interesting ways in the goldfield. It's very male, the goldfields out sure. there. And women are sent out with the Bible to try and civilise these men, to stop them drinking so much, uh, misbehaving, behaving, uh, you know, going around killing each other, thieving from one another. It's seen as a kind of a, a woman's role to bring the Bible into these parts of the world. And at the same time, there's a backlash. There's the anti-wowser backlash that come, that's driven by men writing for the Bulletin and uh, in Sydney at the time. <laughs> yeah. how, do, how do you see that time? Oh, sure. I mean, this is one of the fascinating things, right? is the public Bible is a man's book. You know, clergy are men, politicians on the whole are men. And and yet, who's in the pews? Who's reading the Bible to their children? It's a women's book on a devotional level. Women have always been the custodian of the Bible yeah, in Australia. Yeah, women are doing the Sunday schools, oh, which is sure. a big deal. Yeah. And, I mean, the whole temperance movement that comes out of partly a sense of men's bad behaviour ruins women's lives and we need to restrain it. And so how do you restrain the liquor trade, well, you need the vote. And so literally Sunday school ladies who've kind of taken on some kind of public voice or platform as church visitors to poor communities or Sunday school teachers or temperance campaigners become involved through, say, the Christian temperance unions, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, in the campaign for votes for women. And 
I mean, they're extraordinarily successful. They're, they're the critical factor. I mean, Patricia Grimshaw at Melbourne Uni says this in her work on suffrage. I mean, South Australia, the godly colony, achieves the vote for women much earlier than Victoria, which is relatively secular, partly because the Sunday school ladies were more central to the campaign there. So it's the Sunday school ladies that start the temperance movement and to make the temperance movement work, they need the vote. And so from that, it's probably not as linear as that, but, but that's, how you, that's how you get the Bible being this big impetus for women's suffrage, the, the suffrage movement. Well, they... They had a vision of social reform, not just as something that would make their own lives better, but as something that would, you know, bring something like the New Jerusalem, that it would be a, a godly society. Like the, the rhetoric really soars like the rhetoric of the Bible does. And they had this sense of being on God's mission. And that was incredibly powerful for people who had to, you know, tough out this campaign year after year. They met a lot of opposition. And then I think their devotional sometimes engagement with the text was just the inner nourishment that they needed. I mean, not all the activists were, were Christian Sunday school ladies. There were plenty of secular activists as well. And they made different kinds of arguments. You can just as easily, as Louisa Lawson, the feminist, pointed out, say, well, if you want to justify the oppression of women, well, the Bible's your text. But she would also point, as a secular person, to a verse like Galatians in the New Testament that says, there's no male or female, slave or free. We're, it's this egalitarian text. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So even a secular activist could use the Bible to make an argument for equality. And that surprising use of the Bible outside the church, not in the hands of the Sunday school lady, but someone who was very different to that, that's what surprised me, that that's everywhere. Meredith, the political parties in Australia. <laughs> the Australian Labor Party, the oldest Labor Party in the world, founded uh, begin initially in Queensland in, at the end of the 19th century. How important is the Bible in the foundation of the Labor Party and its ideals? Well, we're talking about a time when the Bible was the common reference point for all kinds of people, whether you were a believer or not. We were talking about William Guthrie Spence before, the, the union organiser, who was an early Labor member and kind of rode the wave of Labor's early electoral success right into the federal parliament. Someone like him described the new unionism, so the kind of unionism post the 1890 strikes that produced the Parliamentary Labor Party, as an effort to put into practice the teachings of the founder of Christianity. He says that to a meeting of socialists. I mean... There's a lot in the Gospels that can stick it to the man and say, actually, God is on the side of the underdog. And that strain of interpretation for the unionists, for, for the radicals like Henry Lawson, again, not necessarily Christian, but that idea of a God who's on the side of the poor and oppressed and who will lift them up and vindicate their cause, that is a very powerful set of interpretations. And does Ben Chifley's phrase about the light on the hill, is that biblical yeah. in origin? Yeah, I mean... They come from a culture where those kind of phrases are just everywhere in the air. And again, it elevates their political vision to something beyond self-interest. It's one of the things that pushes that horizon further out. I think it's easy to think about someone who might be interested in the Bible as kind of narrow. That's a limiting thing. But I think for those earlier generations who found in it those strange and weird and sometimes very potent stories... It was something that enlarged the imagination, that cast political visions and social visions to new lengths. 
Well, how about the Liberal Party? The Liberal Party, it, you know, its predecessor was the United Australia Party and then mm. Robert Menzies refounded it as the modern-day Liberal Party, which was supposed to combine the Liberal and Conservative uh, streams of Australian thought. If there's a foundational moment of the Liberal Party, it's Robert Menzies' famous speech about the forgotten people. Do you hear the Bible in that as a principle, a founding principle of the Liberal Party as well? Well, there's a couple of things there. In those speeches, he almost envisages the ideal family as a Scottish labourer and his family gathered in their home around their fireplace, reading Burns or reading the Bible together every night, you know, the cotter in his home. And that vision of what a worker with a stake in the country is, I think, a vision of citizenship that was very potent for Menzies and many who followed him. And what about the issue of conscience, individual conscience, and why that led evangelicals out of the Labor Party towards uh, the Liberal Party? Well, this goes back to Deakin, Alfred Deakin, who's often remembered as the, the founder of what became the Liberal Party. He often collaborated with Labor on many pieces of legislation, not least White Australia, but in the end didn't form an alliance with Labor over the issue of conscience. Can the caucus dictate the vote of its parliamentary members? When push came to shove, Protestants in the Labor Party, some of them anyway, thought that that impinged on the right of conscience, which is kind of a founding value for Protestantism, and so held back from that and formed a party where conscience and a man's conscience was kind of drenched in particular visions of an autonomous masculine kind of politician as well. There was more scope there for individual conscience. There's a bit of Martin Luther there, isn't there? It's like, here I stand, I can do no other. And, uh, and the whole idea of surrendering your opinion to a caucus vote was anathema to them, was it? Yeah, but again, I mean, what happens is that Methodism, which is so potent in the early labour movement, is eclipsed by a Catholic tradition of social justice and social teaching that does find, mm. does find a home mm. in the Labor Party. And I think, you know, the, the, the rift in the Labor Party in the 1950s and onwards reflects how important that the jostling of the Catholic and the secular elements of the party have been to shaping its parliamentary fortunes. Yeah, you read the story of Gough Whitlam. You know, he when he became deputy leader of the Labor Party to Arthur Corwell, the, the view of the party brokers at the time was that oh, we, we needed a non-Roman, that was their phrase, and, <laughs> as deputy leader so the party wouldn't be seen as too Catholic because right. Whitlam was not uh, a Catholic. He was brought up within a Protestant tradition. So, yeah, this was really very, very potent even in those days. Australian political discourse, I think, borrows a bit more from the British kind of, it's a bit more taciturn. We're not always very explicit about the religious or even the intellectual aspects of, of our political ideas and ideology. We're shyer than Americans, in other words. Well, sure. Yeah. And, oh, they're very effusive, as we all oh, know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's not real or that it's not important. And I think it's a bit subterranean that just kind of doing a Hansard search for Bible quotes won't get you there. But once you dive into the intellectual formation of many of our politicians and into those kind of the theological echoes of those debates over conscience, over how you structure a party, you can see the long tail of European arguments about the Bible going back centuries. So it's not as simple as, well, the Bible produces X or Y, or because of the Bible, this is what happened. But we live in kind of the slipstream, if you like, of a long cultural history of the Bible that has been read as the word of God, as the thing you calibrate all your other understandings to. And that idea might not be mainstream anymore, but its cultural and institutional legacies still linger. And I guess one of the values of history is it can kind of attune us a little more to that, not because it makes something normative in our own time, but I think by just being a bit more conscious of that backstory, we can be wiser in the way 
we face our own issues and our own questions as a society. What is the good life? That we're joining a long conversation there and we need to be wise as we reject and accept and reframe. Tom Holland, the British historian, has yes. written a wonderful book called Dominion. Yes. And in there he's, he's, he traces the kind of the, the radical ideas of Christianity, radical empathy, radical kindness. That's, that's a, that's a, that's, he, he sees it as a kind of a rupture, I think, something new, there was something new under the sun with that, and which is an explanation for its success uh, globally. He says even in an age now where the world is becoming, um, uh, the Western world, his country, Britain and Australia, are becoming more secular, more and more secular all the time, he says the Christian, the biblical origins of our moral thought and our moral language is still very present, but it's people are increasingly unaware of it. Like he sees tons and tons yeah. of Christianity in the woke left right now. I mean, why isn't might right? Like, why do we care that the underdog gets a fair go? Why is that? Why do we pin our national narrative on? a military defeat and say, actually, it's a moment of glory. I think these are stunning reversals. And I think a large part of the explanation is that for not, not for all time and maybe not in the future, but for a certain window of national formation here in Australia, the story of, you know, a Nazarene carpenter who was crucified by an imperial power and yet vindicated as somehow in tune with the author of the universe that kind of reversal, that it's actually in humility, in generosity, in grace, in love, that that is, is, is the thing that can animate not just a good personal life but a, a flourishing community, that's incredibly powerful. And for anybody who's been the victim of some kind of oppression, I mean, you only need to look to liberation movements to see how powerful that can be in South Africa, among black Africans, among people of colour in the US, here in Australia, it's it's got incredible liberating potential um, in in rejection of its more oppressive uses that we also see all around us. And so the question of what kind of text is this, what are we going to make of it, who's got the biblical literacy to even make those calls, that I think is quite urgent. May justice rain down like a mighty river. <laughs> and how lovely it is to speak with you, Meredith. Thank you so much. Oh, my huge pleasure, Richard. Thank you. ABC.net. .au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.